we are the Catalan independentist resistance, and you are listening to a new update from Radio Hadrian in Free Catalonia. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Radio Hadrian Week Six. To those people listening from Catalonia, bona tarda, benvinguts a Radio Adria, setmana sis. If you wanted to suppress a people through future generations indirectly without practicing actual genocide, which would be rather noticeable, how would you do it? And, and I'm, I'm talking about subtle policies, subtle means of doing so without it being obvious, which is what subtle is. Education, okay, education is how we mold and create the next generation in the way we want it. When I say we, I mean governments. I don't mean me in particular. Governments use education as a very effective tool to mold and brainwash the next generation. It starts at preschool, starts at three, four-year-old, even perhaps before through parental policies, and then it continues through the 12 years of compulsory schooling. And in the Western world, education is a bit of a mess. Education is failing a lot of young people. Now, that's partly through deliberate policies. We'll go into that a little bit more, uh, probably in another program. But also through a deliberate effort to dominate a minority culture, an oppressed culture. For example, the Scots, Indigenous Australian, Catalans, and others around the world. There's, there's a long list. I think there's a list of something like 141 small countries who would like to be independent. So I'm sure that each of each of those would have an issue with language. However, we're only looking at Catalan, Scots, and I bring in Indigenous Australia because it is the very best example of the most effective way of killing a culture through education. Okay, when I say education, I'm actually referring to language. If you suppress a people's language, you effectively kill the culture. You commit cultural genocide, linguisticide. And by doing so, you make sure that the next generation do not carry all that a language carries with it. Cultures need language. We need language. We need language for many things. From my own perspective, and you can hear my accent, I don't ha I am Scots. I'm also a naturalized Australian, but I don't have a particularly Australian accent. I don't have a Scottish accent particularly. Um, I have a very mixed accent because although I was born in Scotland, my father's work took us down to England, to Durham. Durham's a very, very nice part of England. And the Durham accent is really nice. Those of you who have seen the film Billy Elliot will know that's what a Durham accent is. I grew, I grew up naturally because I went to school, so I acquired a Durham accent. By the time I was almost 12 years old, we returned to Scotland. I went ahead of my family because I had to start secondary school. And so I was sent to live with my granny in Ardrossan, and I had broad Durham accent. That accent caused me no amount of problems. And I don't say this with any great pride. It, it, doesn't bother me anymore, but it caused me a year of misery. As a 12-year-old who was identified with being Scots, Scots parents, I was born in Scotland, all my family was Scots, and yet I had this accent, which I now love. I love the Durham accent, but at that time, I, I was bullied. I spent the whole of my first year at secondary school at Adrossan Academy being bullied because 
I had an English accent. I mean, I, I got over it, as you do sometimes. Some children don't. But I did get over it, and I never really acquired the Scots accent. But it's funny, because in all the years we lived in England, and we would drive back to Scotland to visit our grandparents and other family, and as soon as we got to the border, we would cross the border, and we always stopped at this little town, which I can't remember the name of, to get something to eat, and I would roll down the window because I was dying to hear Scots accents. I just wanted to hear people speaking Scottish. And yet I myself never acquired that full Scottish accent. And in fact, um, I got teased and bullied so much about it, I think I stopped even trying. Um, my two brothers, my younger brothers, went to primary school in Ardrossan. They went to Stanley Primary School. And they both acquired pretty good local accents, which they still have to this day. And... So then later in life, I migrated to Australia with a very mixed accent, with a, a strange mixture of Scottish and Durham. And over the years in Australia, I acquired not an Australian accent, but certainly Australianisms. I acquired some intonation, some words. I don't know if they come out here or not. So one of the things that happened to me in Australia was not being able to be understood. And when people asked me where I came from and I said I'm Scottish, a lot of people had great issues with the fact that I, I might have a Scottish accent that they would not be able to understand. They had a mental block about Scottish accents, even though, as you hear, I don't have a Scottish accent per se. And they were also actually talking to me at the time, and therefore it was quite ridiculous that they had this mental block about Scottish accents. But my point here is that language and who we identify with being are entwined. And if you take language away from a people, you take away their, ident their cultural identity. Now, as you can tell from the, those anecdotes that I've just told you, those, that wee story, um, I have a very mixed cultural identity. And sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's not because sometimes I don't really know who I am, where I come from, or who, who I belong to. And most of the time that's fine. I just refer to myself as a citizen of the world or one of those terrible cliches that people use these days. But suppression of a people through language is a very, very effective tool. And Scotland was subject to this. The Scots were subject to this for over 300 years. And despite being subject to language oppression, language prohibition, and therefore subsequent cultural oppression, there are still 1.5 million people in Scotland who identify with Scots or Lallans, as it's officially known, as either their mother tongue or their second tongue. So oppression didn't quite work. And in fact, the number of people identifying with this has probably grown, although it's hard to tell because this question was only included on the 2011 census. This was the first time people were actually asked, do you identify with Scots? Previously, Scots did not enter into any census questions. The Gaelic language did, but not Scots. Now, Scots comes from, I think I mentioned this last week, it comes from the lowlands. Lallans means lowlands. And the lowlands are the central belt, the south west of Scotland, where the bulk of the population are. Now, Scotland doesn't have a big population. It has a population of just over 5 million. So if 1.5 million of that population identify with speaking Scots, that's quite a significant number of people. There are two organisations in Scotland I'm going to give a bit of a call out for here. 
because they do fantastic work in keeping the language alive, promoting the language and pressurising the Scottish Government to do a better job than they are doing with the Scots language. One of them is the Scots Language Centre, www.scotshonwick.co.uk. I'm going to spell that for you. www.scotshonwick.co.uk is a wonderful collection of every resource anyone could ever want about the Scots language and promoting it and keeping it alive. Not just keeping it alive, but actually making it a much more significant part of Scotland than it currently is. And that comes from the Scots Language Centre. Their email, their web address is www.scotslanguage.com www.scotslanguage.com Anybody who is listening to this and who is in the remotest bit interested in the Scots language, its history, its future, its current state of affairs, should go to those websites and they will go onto the Facebook page. The Scots Language Centre promotes the Scots language. It speaks in the Scots language. It also puts pressure on the Scots government for Scots to be in every school in Scotland. At the moment, unless something has changed since I last updated my information, their, their, their line of thought is that Scots should be taught in every Scots primary school. I differ with that. I don't agree with that opinion. Whilst I think it's, it's worthy, it's not enough to just teach it. Because people can opt out of that. My thoughts are that the Scots language, Scots or Lallans, must be compulsory in every single school in Scotland. Perhaps out with the... Gaelic speaking areas and I know that anybody listening to this who's a big supporter of Gaelic or who my goodness if there's any Gaelic speakers listening to this let me know because that would be absolutely fabulous. Gaelic has its own set of problems with the Scottish government and I do not think it's appropriate for Scots to be taught in schools in the Gaelic speaking areas and therein we have a problem in Scotland in that um, linguistically we are very mixed up we're not homogenous However, we have Lallans in the southern parts and we have Gaelic spoken as a native tongue in a lot of parts of the Highland. However, the number of people who speak Gaelic as in mother tongue is very, very, very small. This program is about Scots language though, so not Gaelic. I just want to say I just wanted to say that because I have a lot of respect for the Gaelic language and I think they have as much right for their tongue to be spoken as the Scots do, the Scots language does. The Scottish government really doesn't do very much in terms of um, being an advocate or having a strong voice because in the last year, the last, uh, last two or three years, the education policies have shifted to something which is akin to being nothing short of a potential disaster for education in that they have decided to give autonomy to local schools, to the local head teachers. And so the head teachers now have the right to decide what languages, if any languages, are taught in their schools. And I just, I think this is the biggest mistake ever to be made in education. However, I don't think it's a mistake. 
I think it's intentional policy and the Scottish Government um, in my view don't get any credit whatsoever for promoting language either second languages or third languages foreign languages but more so our own Scots language letting schools choose for themselves isn't educational leadership it's sitting on the fence and John Swinney education minister knows perfectly well that his policies his policies of reform and creating local responses to educational needs is not about educational leadership it's about passing the buck and letting head teachers deal with the headache and what it presents is what the end result is a mess an educational mess where we have a hodgepodge of things happening all over the country and linguistically that's a disaster for culture and it's a disaster for Scottish children this is very very different to what happens in Wales and here in Catalonia in Catalonia Catalan is spoken by over 9 million people not just in Catalonia but the bulk about 6 million plus in Catalonia and another few million in areas like Valencia um, and other areas which also come under the Catalan language area but it's the official language of the government local authority and it's the official language of instruction in every single school it's also um, the language in universities so if you put language into schools the way they do here you have every single child speaking that language they may not go home and speak it because they may have parents who don't speak Catalan and that that's very much the case because there are many many people here from the south of Spain and from South America and from non-Spanish speaking countries who don't speak Catalan at home but they speak it at school they must speak it at school the children also learn Spanish at school as a second language and both of these are compulsory there is no choice head teachers don't have a choice and children and families don't have a choice it is compulsory and this is where I think the Scottish government really really fall flat on their face in terms of strong decision strong leadership in Wales Welsh is taught in every single school it's compulsory Welsh is spoken by one in five people in Cardiff as their native tongue I think they're known as Cardis which sounds like something you put on on a winter's day and button up the front doesn't it but one in five people in Cardiff cite Welsh as their mother tongue Welsh is spoken every single day in business and socially that doesn't happen in Scotland that does not happen in Scotland and the basis for the problem comes back to schools everything comes back to schools back to schools all the time and the Scottish government have a lot to answer for in two things one is the curriculum for excellence which gives schools the capacity to teach about Scottish culture and to teach about Scottish language I mean it's Scotland that goes without saying of course they should be teaching that but it should be it should be integrated into the curriculum not taught as a separate subject and the language leaving it up to head teachers who already have enough on their plate who have massive massive workloads and who do not get paid enough money for that workload because they're doing the government's job for them for them to then have to juggle around languages and think what language should we speak or oh, we'll do this one this year maybe we'll do another one next year if that doesn't work that is not how language policy should be again I just mentioned briefly and I hope <laughs> I'm not um, rambling too much I just want to make sure that any any Gaelic speakers or anybody who feels passionate about the Gaelic language who's listening 
Do not think for one minute that I am neglecting or ignoring the Gaelic language. However, I will say this. Much as I love Gaelic, it is a beautiful, beautiful language and it's very important. It's a very important language which has suffered linguistic genocide. It is spoken by as, an, an, as a mother tongue. It is spoken by something like around 2,000 people. Now, it was once spoken by many, many more people and linguistic genocide through history has made sure that it is a very, very minority language. It has been revived, but in terms of native speakers, there are so few native speakers that it isn't possible to suggest that Gaelic should be the language of instruction in all schools in a particular part of Scotland. And I know last week I mentioned that Scotland is like a divided country. We have the Highlanders in the north and the Gaelic-speaking communities, and then we have the Lallans down in the south with quite a different, it's quite a different culture. So, um, with all due respect, I don't believe that Gaelic can form a main language in Scotland. However, Gaelic speakers are not going to be happy about their children being um, obliged to learn Scots at school. So my thoughts are that the Scottish government, John Swinney, should very clearly state that all schools will teach in either Gaelic or Scots as the first language, the language of instruction. Every subject in Scots or Gaelic depending on their geographical location and English as a compulsory second language. Young children learn languages very, very easily. Their brains work fluidly and they acquire language very, very easily. There's no point in waiting till children get to secondary school before offering them Scots as a language or Gaelic as a language. It needs to be done as early as possible and alongside English because I'm not advocating that Scots should be taught to the exclusion of English. English is a world language, it's a very dominant language and to get on in this world you have to be able to speak very good English. So I strongly believe the Scottish Government should, as I just said, allow schools, no not, not allow schools, make schools it should be mandatory for schools to instruct in either Scots or Gaelic with English alongside. Now how you do that is then perhaps up to head teachers with support from the Scottish Government if they choose to give that, which these days I think they give very little support to schools. Um, if you 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 can split the curriculum up, you can decide that some line some subjects will be taught in in English and some subjects will be taught in Scots but the majority would be taught in Scots or you can make every subject be taught in Scots with English as a unit of its own a compulsory continual unit of its own no child would suffer under that no child at all they're exposed to English on a daily basis their English would advance and in fact it's well known it's well documented that if you can learn one language a second language you can learn more so here's a thought. The Scottish Book Trust, another wonderful organisation that promotes the Scots language 
particularly in schools and through literature. They give five reasons on their website as to why Scots should be taught in schools. I have to say I disagree with the idea of the word taught, teaching it. It should be ingrained into the curriculum. However, the reasons are good. So the Scottish Book Trust say, number one, it develops skills in language learning. Two, it gives pupils confidence to contribute and to express themselves. Three, it helps pupils to apply and appreciate culture to their everyday lives. Four, it helps create effective contributors to society. And five, it's fun. And I would add that it's also inclusive because in Scotland there are, there's an increasing number of migrants, people who come from other, obviously migrants come from other countries, and these children bring with them a different mother tongue. So when they are faced with having to learn languages in a classroom alongside their, their Scots counterparts, they can often feel kind of excluded because they're dealing with their own mother tongue, they're dealing with acquiring a new tongue and alongside their Scots counterparts, if they're all learning the same new language, because a lot of Scots children don't speak Scots anymore. It's been squashed, it's been pushed out. So if they're all learning the same language, then they're all in it together. So it allows those migrant children to feel included because they are not at a disadvantage in terms of already having Scots. However, having said that, there are, obviously with 1.5 million um, adults on the census who identified with speaking Scots as their mother tongue, there's obviously a lot of children at home who speak Scots as a mother tongue. When I was at secondary school in Adrosan at Adrosan Academy, Scots was banned. We weren't allowed to speak Scots. I was very lucky. I heard it at home, even though I never quite fully acquired the tongue. I heard it at home from my grandparents, my, my, my parents, and I had a wonderful teacher. Her name was Helen Dick. And in my third year at secondary school, she said to us, you know what? We're not going to worry about what we're supposed to do. And we are going to speak Scots in here. She was our English teacher. We're going to speak Scots in here. We're going to read Scots literature. And you are going to learn your own language. So I have nothing but wonderful memories of that teacher. They say we're all inspired by a, a good teacher at some point in our life. And Helen Dick was certainly the, the person who inspired me. And I thank her very much because with my English accent, I needed a bit of a crutch to acquire some Scots. So the Scottish Book Trust are very active in promoting Scots within schools. However, as I say, they promote it more to um, as a teaching a unit, as a study subject, not quite how I think it should be done. Okay, so Welsh, Catalan, code switching. The people who speak Scots have code switching in common with people here in Catalonia who speak Catalan. They, I'm trying to learn Catalan and I'm trying to learn uh, Spanish or Castellano. It's probably um, a crazy idea to try and learn them both together. However, you hear them both all the time here. And so 
for me, I'm a sort of acquiring them and learning them both as I go along. But I hear Catalan speakers code switching all the time. They go back and forward between their two tongues. Now they've got their mother tongue, which is Catalan, and they've got their second tongue, which is Spanish or Castellano, and they go back and forward, and this is known as code switching. Scots speakers do exactly the same thing. The language that they speak at home is probably not going to be the formal language they would speak if they had to present at a conference with international visitors. So they code switch between English and Scots the whole time. Um, okay. Teacher training in schools has to be changed. It has to be changed to include an appreciation and possibly language instruction, language learning of teach, teaching students at universities so that they enter their teaching careers with a working knowledge of the Scots language. Not just so that they can teach it for eight weeks in term three or whatever it's going to be. So that they can actually speak it with their students and so they can teach it and it is understood. It has to be absolutely basic and intrinsic. So teacher training has to also be looked at. And this idea of children in Scottish primary schools spending eight weeks or six weeks studying their own culture is nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. And the Scottish government knows this. But I suspect that the Scottish government is playing safe. They're sitting on the fence because there are a lot of people from other countries, well, not from other countries, let's say from England, who don't appreciate the Scots language and who don't believe that it should be the basic language in schools, the basic language of the country. So I suspect, like everything else, the Scottish government is cowtoading to its masters. And that's tragic for the future of Scotland. Scottish children, their children, their grandchildren, the whole lot. Um, we all grew up with a couple of books which a lot of people here will know about, Urwali and the Bruins. Now, I'm going to finish this very shortly, but I'm going to mention this quickly. Urwali and the Bruins were written in Scots. They're written in Lalans. Nobody had any trouble understanding them. We read them. We could understand them. They were very, very funny. But why don't we hear them? Why don't we hear anything in the media about Scots? Why don't we have television programs in Scots? There are Gaelic programs through BBC Alpa. And they are wonderful. I love watching them. But where's the Scots content? Most of the content in the BBC comes from London. And that's definitely not Scots content. This is wrong. There are one or two nice little um, examples I can give of things being translated into, into the Scots language. This is, of course, through the Scottish Book Trust. One is Roald Dahl's, the BFG. And that's been translated into Scots by Susan Rennie. There are books which you can look up on the Scottish Book Trust uh, website in Scots, but uh, they they are not easy to find. The last time I was in Waterstones, the amount of Scottish content was minimal. I had to look for it. That was in Sucky Hall Street in Glasgow. That's pitiful. The major bookseller in Glasgow does not have an obvious Scottish content section. In fact, if I remember right, it came under British. The European Charter for Regional and Minority Languages, 1992 was ratified by the UK government and therefore Scots, along with Welsh and Gaelic, are supposed to be not only protected but promoted. The Scottish government have a responsibility in this and they are not upholding that responsibility. If they want Scotland to stay in Europe, they need to do something about that because in Europe 
language learning is par for the course. Children here in Catalonia and in other parts of Europe nearly all speak multiple languages. It's taken for granted that you will learn languages. Modern progressive countries make sure their children acquire languages. So let's leave it there just now. My main points are that the Scots tongue should be not something children study at school as a special unit, but something that is the basis for instruction in every single primary school. The Scottish Government have responsibility for this. The Scottish Government, John Swinney, Nicola Sturgeon, can do something about this. If they truly believe in the future of Scotland as a progressive, modern, hopefully European country, post-Brexit, who knows what's going to happen with that, but if they want Scotland to be considered on the world stage as a progressive and modern country, they need to address this language issue, and they're not addressing it. One final thing I think I would like to add is that in an ideal world, in a utopian world, there are many things I would love to see Scotland doing and practicing. Maybe one day in, in my lifetime it will happen. At the moment it won't happen through referendums. It will not happen through the processes of either the UK or the Scottish governments. It would happen through UDI. It would happen through the people taking control of their own destiny. And in that utopian world, I would like to see, in terms of language, one, Scots and Gaelic as the language of instruction in all Scottish primary schools. Second, English as a compulsory second language taught alongside Gaelic and Scots as the language of instructions, just as it is done here in Catalonia. Thirdly, what I call LOAT, this is an Australian expression, language other than English, or in this case, Scots or Gaelic. And here's an idea, sign language. I speak sign language because I worked with children with disabilities for years. It's a language, it's a world language. How about that as an additional language? Or how about Esperanto? So we do away with Schools needs to choose oh, French over German over Spanish over Chinese, which is increasingly popular in European schools. And we teach Esperanto, which has no borders. Sign language has no borders. It has no patriotism attached to it. It has no oppression. It has no colonialism attached to it. It's just a language. And on that thought, sign language or Esperanto, I'll leave you. Have a great Sunday, and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Okay, bye for now, and thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Scotland. I'm David Ravantos, and it's a privilege, again, and thanks as always to K Radio to start my participation in this Chapter 6 of Radio Hadrian. Y bona tarde, Catalunya. Uh, today, uh, first I would like to thank everybody who's sharing and sharing and sharing these programs. Uh, we are sure that in 2018 both Catalonia and Scotland are going to be independent, but not through the processes that are offered to us. And then these programs will become a humble but relevant part of the fight we're doing. So please... We need everybody in Scotland and Catalonia to listen to the things we're being said here because it's truths that are hidden from everybody. Mainstream media don't want the truth to come out. They're there to avoid it. So please keep doing what you're doing. Keep making this family grow and keep spreading the program. Today, I would like to speak about the Spanish royal family 
then I would uh, comment as well on the exhumation of the body of Salvador Dali that happened this week. Then I'll go on to briefly, because it's something that deserves a full program, but briefly to talk about um, the 11th of March 2004 bomb attack in the trains in Madrid, which would be considered the Spanish 9-11. And finally, we'll briefly, because it's also something that would deserve a full program, we'll go on to Pablo Iglesias and Podemos, the big uh, fake operation. In, in Spain to keep controlling the system, keeps creating so-called anti-system to uh, keep us all inside the frame. Without uh, more delay, we go with the first topic, which is the Spanish royal family. The Spanish royal family that has been in the person of Felipe VI or Philip VI and his wife Leticia formerly a news anchor in uh, Spanish television. In a further program, we'll talk about the too intimate relation between journalism and politics nowadays. Catalan president Carlos Puigdemont is a journalist. Uh, Leticia Ortiz, the Spanish queen, was a journalist. The leader of Scottish stories, Ruth Davidson, is a former journalist. So one day we're going to go into this too cozy relationship between fields that should be apart because we should we should trust uh, journalists to tell us about the bad things that power does with if they're in bed together literally in these cases how can we expect them to tell us the truth but Spanish royal family has visited uh, United Kingdom and we're not going to go in detail about all the wrong things about a figure or a institution which is so out of fashion as royalties and the royals but specifically i want to go into the spanish royal family because it has a story that especially for us catalan cannot be more disgusting the present family now borbons was instated in spanish throne in the war in the beginning of the 18th century where catalonia lost the war the 1714 the fall of barcelona and then philip v which is very nice, and now we have Philip VI, which really shows how much they care about Catalans feeling good with his monarchy. So that was the beginning of uh, Bourbon family. Jumping a lot in history, we had Franco giving a coup in 1936 to kill what was the Second Spanish Republic. And after 40 years, he reinstated monarchy. So actually, it's... Uh, uh, it's like, well, he won the war, and 40 years after, he, he put his heir in the throne, in the, in the person of Juan Carlos I. And this king, and well, that's not going to grant me a lot of friends in the Spanish establishment, but hey, we need to tell the truth, not to, not to play safe. Juan Carlos uh, not only was chosen by the dictator, but I'll give you just a few things to so you grasp what we're talking about. First thing, he betrayed his father because it should have been his father who should have been king. But his father didn't see eye to eye to the Franco murder. So Franco uh, overstepped him and chose Juan Carlos. So first, you betray your own father. Nice one. But it, it just gets better. 
because in 1956 and in Good Thursday, he killed his own brother. He killed his own brother shooting with a shot. And what is uh, more interesting is that initially the version was that his brother had been cleaning the gun and accidentally he shot himself dead. It would be a reenactment or it would be a preview of the famous uh, magic bullet that later on would kill Kennedy. This, this bullet only went straight line to kill him. But then it came out that it was Juan Carlos who killed him. Uh, accidentally, of course. But... Well, the guy was 18, he says he shot and he didn't know it was loaded. The guy was 18 and had more than one year of military training in uh, military school. And you know what? That gun was a present from Francisco Franco himself. Uh, if you saw it in a film, it would be hard to believe. Well, that's the truth. Uh, in 1975, he gets reinstated at the death of Franco. And we jump to 1977 when the young actress Sandra Mozarovsky, and in stories that have been in several books, including uh, relevant historians, well, this young actress uh, is deemed to have been pregnant of Juan Carlos, and she accidentally, when she was pregnant, fell from the balcony and died after 22 days in a coma. Um, he's a bit jinged, this person. It better not get close to him because everybody around him uh, dies very young because his brother was 14 when he died. Sandra Mozarovsky was only 18. And to the last years, he's been in the center of all kinds of scandals. His brother, his son-in-law, should be in prison, but uh, hey, he escaped at the last minute. His daughter claimed not to know what she was signing in a, in a, something that has to do with corruption and embezzlement of money. He has had more scandals that we would care to, sexual scandals that we would care to say here. And some years ago, uh, he uh, killed an elephant in a uh, organized safari, very expensive, and all that uh, with money that he hasn't earned working, that's for sure. But the question is that he was the president of honor of the most relevant uh, pro-animal right organization in Spain. So that's the Spanish royal family to you in a nutshell. And that's only what's public and everybody knows. So, um, well, we want them out as soon as possible. We, we don't want Spaniards to have to put up with this once we're gone, but certainly we Catalans, we don't want to form part of anything to do with Spanish regime or Spanish royalty. The Spanish king Juan Carlos, uh, now the, because he abdicated two years ago and now he's, we have uh, Felipe VI, it links with the second theme today, which is Salvador Dalí, because he uh, is deemed to have one daughter, and one son at the wedlock that considering everything that has been told about his uh, life and well he's also related to the coup in 1981 that didn't work and he's supposed to be the main partner with Jordi Pujol uh, which has some big scandals as well so he ticks every box in the things that uh, you shouldn't do but uh, 
there is one woman in, in Belgium and one Catalan guy uh, claiming and having AD, ADN proof that they are the siblings of Juan Carlos. But they don't allow to, to give it because it has some really serious implications because uh, Spanish Constitution 1978, as it could be no different, establishes that there's no uh, distinction between siblings in and out of the wedlock. And the Catalan guy happens to be older than the current king now. So actually, he should be king of Spain. So, of course, you can imagine powers that be uh, moving everything in their power to avoid this guy being recognized as king. This thing of uh, affiliation and paternity claims and ADN proof links to the one of the big issues going on in Catalonia. Catalonia now, in 70-something days, is going to be a referendum. So everything is happening at the same time because they have to keep our attention out of, you know, these people that have one ball, I don't know the word in English, but they call trileros in Catalonia or in Spanish, where they have a ball and they move it and the three goblets, and you never guess where it's right because uh, they want to keep your, your attention out of it. Well, the same thing is going on in Catalonia. Everything is happening at the same time. So we don't pay attention to the fact that we have 72 deputies in Spanish parliament, that they compromise that would declare independence if they were 68, and they're not doing it. And to keep lying to 7.5 million people every day, every day, every day for years, every day they need to invent something, and they're changing governments, and then... You had the police going inside Catalan Parliament and Catalan Presidency. And you have uh, Neymar getting an offer from Paris Saint-Germain. And you have everything is going on at the same time. Well, but one thing that has happened uh, these days is that Pilar Abel, a 61-year-old woman living now in Girona, but originally from Figueras, has presented a paternity claim uh, to the Spanish state related to her claiming to be the daughter of the genial and magnificent artist Salvador Dali, uh, the master of surrealism. And we have to say that the story we're going through uh, really couldn't be more surrealistic itself. Uh, because Dali has a story of several biographies that he was a boyer and that he only had sex once with Gala. And in uh, some others, is, he is claimed to be homosexual. So everything about his sexuality puts us off the idea that he might have fathered somebody. But then a woman, 61-year-old woman, uh, claims that her grandmother 50 years ago told her that that famous man was, his, uh, was her father. And it seems that her mother has establish that fact too. So there's been a big case because he's been dead for 28 years. He was embalmed with his famous mustache pointing at uh, 10 past 10. And she has been granted rights or the, the court has, has uh, opened last uh, Thursday. Uh, they opened the grave, which happens to be in the middle of uh, the hall in the theater museum in Figueras. And they extracted uh, the typical things here, skin, nails, and uh, two bones to compare uh, with the AVN that has been extracted from that woman. We, um, we are not going to position ourselves in this because we normally don't talk about things we don't know for sure. 
and the information here we only have from public information and as we know public information it just is information so they've mentioned that this woman is a fortune teller which seems to be true and that she has lost already some court cases and some things but the question here as always is that we cannot know what the truth is because we know and know better than most because the Spanish state invented that I had a mental illness to put me away. So in this case, we're not just talking about name, memory, and family rights. We're talking that she would be the heir, the heir of uh, the inheritance of Salvador Dali, which is valued in in um, millions of euros and thousands of millions of euros maybe it's difficult to tell because sadly there's a sad there's a dark side in uh, Salvador Dali or Avida Dollars which uh, using the letters of her name baptized him uh, like that uh, Andre Breton uh, because he signed sometimes he went on to sign uh, paper uh, so it, it could be used later to produce money so uh, everything that has to do with Dali money and weird things so it's a bit shady but but the question here is relevant uh, if this woman if this Pilar Abel happens to be the legitimate uh, daughter of Salvador Dali apart from the scandal or the stories or the rivers of ink that would run she would have the right to 25% of the works of Salvador Dali as her legitimate right and everything else, uh, and, and it has been given to Spanish government. So now we have here a, a clear case of Spanish government against one person. So we'll wait. The, the court case is going to be in September. So in September, we'll let you know what the case is. But that's been big news and with international, international relevance this week here from Catalonia. Next uh, issue in tonight's uh, today's program is the attack of the 11th of March of 2004 in trains in Madrid, which caused uh, 192 deaths and more than 2,000 people were injured. As we always do when we talk about these things, the first thing is that if somebody lost somebody there, our utter respect that we think that the best thing we can do for the people that died there and for people who's dying in false flag attacks all over the world is to do our bit to let the truth be known those uh, that week there were general elections in spain that were supposed to be won by uh, partido popular which was supporting uh, has been supporting uh, united states uh, the wars in afghanistan and iraq it was a peculiar moment because some think tanks in the United States said that the only way that George Bush, who was behind in the polls with John Kerry, to retain uh, government would be that there was a big attack in Europe. And not only that there would be a big attack, but that that attack would cause the fall of a government. So then... We have to remember that George Bush started by uh, all those weird shenanigans with Al Gore and the elections in uh, Florida that the brother of George Bush happened to be governor of. Then 9-11 that we won't go into here. 
and that started war in Afghanistan and later on brought the war in Iraq. We talk about the moment that he was behind in the polls and people kept dying there in these wars. We mean Americans, of course. The unpeople, as uh, John Piljok calls people that don't live in the first world, don't matter, but American soldiers were dying, so the the position towards the wars was going down. So in that circumstance, then the attack in Madrid happened. But it was not only necessary there was an attack, there was, it was needed that there would be a changing government. The think tanks that made the, the survey were that specific. And we have to say that uh, everything is as uh, shady as in, uh, in 9-11. We have to say that those uh, attacks happened, and that's something that is not a conspiracy theory, something that you can check. From the 6th to the 10th of March, the NATO did their CMX uh, drills in several uh, capital cities, including Madrid, where... Uh, members of personnel of NATO were allowed to go with all kind of equipment through infrastructures, and that is from 4th to 10th of March. And then the very next day, the worst uh, attack ever on Spanish soil happens the next day. And that just only goes to show how impune, how, how free from scrutiny, from control they feel they are. They don't even feel they have to discuss this because they have all the media and people who tell the truth, we can be massacred and closed in places so the truth never comes out because they did it the very next day. And we have to say that uh, the people that was accused of it happened to be small-time crooks that had been seen in a prostitution club, so they happened to be a peculiar kind of jihadists, which bear a tremendous resemblance uh, with the people that did or are supposed to have done 9-11 just three years before. So all these people seem to have been scapegoats. Uh, it's peculiar that we're so perfect in doing the attack and then they committed so many mistakes after. But the truth is as follows. It's not only that... Uh, because immediately Spanish government led it to say that it was ETA, the, the Basque armed band. But they did it in such a wrong way that it can only be that they were told by the powers that be that they had to commit political suicide. You don't need, and at the same time they were saying this, Arnaldo Otegi, which was the spokesman of ETA, or more or less the, the Basque movement, was saying they had nothing to do with it. And Al-Qaeda was claiming responsibility in European media. So Spanish government decided to commit suicide politically. Okay, so they knew. They knew it was going to happen. They let it happen, or they made it happen. And then they committed political suicide because the plan was that they were going to lose an election that they had all but won. There was another chapter where in Leganes, close to Madrid, a so-called... Uh, Terrorists waited patiently five hours till the whole building was evicted uh, from neighbors, and then they committed suicide, which happened to not leave any traces, bodies were not shown, uh, blood was not on the walls, and it happens that it was, seems that it was done with C3, which is a military use only explosive. And there has to be a, a policeman 
that a geom a member of a special core group and always these weird stories uh, his uh, corpse uh, his tomb seems to have been profanated by family members of the of the attackers so they had to incinerate the body so there's no proof that this uh, this person died there and the trains were destroyed and everything was uh, was disappeared but the relevant thing here is well that was not al-qaeda that was not eta they always do the same thing they they put two alternative lies one has been eta the others the other press saying it was al-qaeda but actually it was neither of them it was nato because it was the only way to guarantee that george bush would get re-elected so that's what we're talking we're talking about murder organized murder gladio b and the link with the last team today is because essential to that were actions were through sms because we're talking about 2004 thousands of people were called to uh, to surround the the offices of partido popular asking to know the truth to know the truth and guess what the people who happens to be in the group where the idea happened were none other than pablo iglesias and juan carlos monedero the leaders of podemos in the beginnings of podemos so how curious that some very young uh, pablo iglesias and juan carlos monedero were essential to uh, make the government fall and to give the impression to the world that al-qaeda had committed those crimes so they they paid a tremendous uh, service to the intelligence services of the western world so things are not what they seem so we go just briefly and we'll go deeply into it uh, to explain again the story of podemos podemos is supposed to be vaguely uh, here of the movements of 15m which were similar to the occupy movements in other places and it's supposed to be uh, defending the people and very extreme left wing and all these things but sadly we we should already have learned people listening to this program that that's that's not the case the system when they realize that there's some people that cannot be controlled with the usual uh, uh, political parties or media the system creates new ones so nobody escapes the matrix and that's the invention of podemos we're talking about somebody as we have explained but no mainstream media has put two and two together we're talking about this public research was instrumental now it's it's proof I and mean, we know that felipe gonzalez it's published it's known is a cia agent but he was the prime minister of spain for 14 years that's why he kept spain in nato contrary to what he had said before with this public iglesias happened to be a nobody but we know that that held the interest of uh, of george bush already in 2004 and he's a nobody and then he gets invited in mainstream media and radio the same week the same week they create a celebrity out of nowhere and that is infiltration that is secret services but especially because it happens in some media which are supposed to be catholic right-wing pro-system and totally the opposite of what pablo iglesias is supposed to represent how would the system and that's something we really need to get clear in our minds 
the system don't give away their main tools. And one of the main tools the system has is television. So why on earth would the system uh, promote an anti-system? The answer should be uh, apparent to anybody with normal intelligence and not blinded by cognitive dissonance. When the system promotes a so-called anti-system, it's because he is an infiltrated Obvious, isn't it? And uh, that's it. And that clarifies all the things that would be too deep to go into here, but we need to educate ourselves and go after. Why would Time Magazine uh, consider him one of one of the influential uh, politicians of the year? The same thing as they do as with Ada Colau, the mayoress of Barcelona, which also was financed. Well, he was supposed she was supposed to be an activist, but she was uh, paid and has links with Soros and all these kind of organizations and the Ford Foundation and all this. So it's all a big lie. Uh, Pablo Iglesias is Felipe González too. Pablo Iglesias is linked to uh, the attack in 2004 in the trains of Madrid where he and Juan Carlos Monedero uh, defended the interest of Western countries uh, helping the government of Partido Popular to come down as it was in the interest of the United States. So everything uh, everything gets linked and everything forms part of this big lie. I, I know most people before listening to this program might think that 11 of March 2004 was done by Al-Qaeda, that Pablo Iglesias is supposed to be a challenge to the system and they, they haven't known that the Spanish former king killed his own brother and uh, in his interest, a young actress of 18 was killed and all this. So that's our job and we'll keep doing it until something happened to us because the truth, only the truth will set us free. And when everybody listens to these programs as it's going to happen, because every day we have more people listening to them and telling us what they can do to help. So you, you can lie to everybody for some time or you can lie to somebody for a short period. But you cannot lie to 13 million Scottish and European and, and Catalans forever. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading it. And if, if nothing happens in between, we'll meet you next week. Guanyarem. This has been another update from the Catalan Independentist Resistance from Radio Hadrian. Remember that you can follow us on social media, either on Facebook, YouTube, our Twitter account, Instagram, Google, Telegram, and also on Evox. E